You're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Blue Diamond. We're big snackers around the Goop office. You know the drill, three o'clock rolls around and you find yourself reaching for whatever is lying around in striking distance. Last resort snacking, as it turns out, usually isn't all that satisfying, which is why we decided to give our snack drawers a makeover and stock them with Blue Diamond Whole Natural Almonds. I go for handfuls before meetings, often multiple handfuls if I'm honest, because they're that good. Between the fats and minerals in Blue Diamond's non-parel supreme almonds, they're significantly healthier than popping candy or chips throughout the day, and they actually tide me over until dinner time. Head over to goop.com for some recipes made with Blue Diamond Whole Natural Almonds. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. Today, Elise is starting her special January series focused around detox, nutrition, and resetting the body. Her first guest is Walter Longo. Walter is a professor of gerontology and biological science at USC and the director of the USC Longevity Institute. He's also the author of The Longevity Diet. Walter is at the forefront of research on aging and nutrition, as well as lifestyle interventions that could have massive impacts on how long we live and how healthy we are. He's also one of the world's leading experts on fasting, and Elise got to ask him about all of this. Okay, let's go to Elise and Walter Longo. So Dr. Longo, I know you had aspirations of becoming the next Mick Jagger, Bruce Springsteen. What happened and how did you end up becoming a doctor and a researcher? No, actually the aspiration was to be the next uh, Mark Knopfler, uh, so guitar player or Slash. Okay. You know, so I was a guitar player. <laughs> I had no, no intention of becoming a singer. And um, yeah, so I did all I've, I've done since I, uh, I had done since I was 10 years old. And then eventually, even as I got to graduate school, I was still a musician uh, primarily. And finally, I had to make the, the, the switch to, uh, to biochemistry and to uh, aging. I, I think I always wanted to do that. But uh, since uh, my dream was to be a rock star since I was 10, <laughs> uh, it took me a long time to figure out that that was not it. That's not what I wanted to do. And um, yeah, so <laughs> I had a, a touring band uh, in, in Los Angeles. Uh, we used to tour up uh, the coast, you know, all the way to Seattle and uh, back down just in three or four days every, maybe once a month we did that while, while I was at UCLA uh, doing my PhD. But then eventually... Somebody said, uh, you know, you got to pick. You got to pick? Well, did you make the right choice? I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that I knew I, I made the right choice. I was on the plane with the Foo Fighters. And uh, I thought, wow, it wouldn't it be great if I could just go and have... The, we were both flying to Atlanta, and then I was going to uh, Ecuador on my research. And I just thought it would be great to play a concert with them, you know, as just like a second guitar player. And then I thought, but... 
just one, you know, because then I got to go back, got to go to Ecuador, right? So to me, even the Foo Fighters, you know, one of the top bands in the world, would, uh, you know, wouldn't have convinced me to do more than one, uh, one night. Of course, it's not, never going to happen, but uh, at least in my, in my head, it was like that, you know. Well, science thanks you for continuing on. And you have become one of the foremost experts in longevity, fasting, what it is that is required to not only potentially become a centarian, but to have a really long, healthy lifespan, right? Like you, be- you seem to believe that if you live a long life, you don't need to spend the last 20 or 30 years of your life ill or combating a number of chronic diseases. Is that fair? Yes, it's fair. So uh, as you said, our focus is really on how do you get somebody to be 110 uh, healthy. Mm-hmm. And um, and I follow two people like that uh, very recently. One was Salvatore Caruso and the other one was Emma Morano. Salvatore was 110 and Emma was 117. Wow. I followed her for five years in, in northern Italy. And um, and so that's... that's uh, uh, one one of the, w- the pillars um, of longevity, one of the things that I rely on to make decisions on what we should do. And and so that's a plan. And, and it takes um, a lot to understand what to do. And fasting is one of the components, but it gets, it's much more complicated than fa- just fasting. It's about everyday nutrition. Uh, there are some, uh, of course, uh, exercise components, et cetera, et cetera. So, and there's also, as, we, uh, as I found out in my second book, the healthcare system uh, is very, very important, right? So most people don't know that Monte Carlo is one of the longest lived uh, place, uh, places in the world. And certainly it's a very wealthy place that uh, puts a lot of attention on, on um, you know, how do you get somebody to, to the hospital very quickly? Mm. Or uh, how do you, uh, you know, follow somebody uh, who's 90 years old that may be not eating very well? And how do you make sure that they get their meals uh, um, mm-hmm. every day at the same time? Yeah. Got it. And so when you're not, when, when people are not fasting, and I know that the idea is to not fast or to not do a fasting mimicking diet, which we'll talk about in a minute, more than once every four months or so. You like a pescatarian, plant-based approach for most people? Yes. And I think that you mentioned opinion earlier, and I think I try to make things very much about the least about my opinion and the (laughs) most about the pillars, you know, Mm -hmm. the centenarians being one, and then clinical trials, epidemiology, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, the everyday diet based on the facts and all these different pillars is uh, the pescatarian diet. So fish plus vegan mm-hmm. seems to be uh, ideal where the fish is only a couple times a week. And the reason for that is lots of people that become vegan, they become malnourished. Mm-hmm. They don't realize it, but they become malnourished. So it's not easy, particularly if you always ate lots of meat and all of a sudden you stop. Uh, your body struggles. And also... Uh, for example, the protein intake can become uh, minimal if you don't pay attention. So, yeah, pescatarian diet, vegan plus fish, paying attention to uh, the mercury and preferring uh, uh, wild-caught uh, fish. That is uh, seems to be ideal uh, based on everything we know. And then intermittent fasting, which has obviously become a big topic of conversation, sort of at least in the United States around health. Do you do you like the idea of people eating between prescribed hours or like a 12-hour span? Or do you feel like that's not as important as like an occasional fasting mimicking diet? 
or both? Yeah, believe it or not, some form of fasting is now the most common dietary uh, intervention in the United States mm-hmm. um, and probably around the world as far as, as we can see. So at the same time, intermittent fasting doesn't really mean anything. I hate the, these two words um, <laughs> because they really go from a uh, couple hours of not eating to a month or, mm-hmm. or longer of, of not eating. So, so which one is it and, and is it uh, and what's the composition? What are you eating during that period? Is it nothing? Is it a fasting mimicking diet? Mm-hmm. Is it a, a, a normal diet cut by 50%? So I think that uh, because now it is so popular and, it's, uh, and doctors are beginning to pay attention, we need to move to the next level. And if we don't, and I organized a conference recently in Los Angeles, and that was really the point. If we don't do that, if we don't move it to the next level, we start defining things, then it's going to disappear again. And we're mm-hmm. going to go back to drugs, and only drugs. And um, so, so intermittent fasting, for example, there's something called time-restricted feeding, which is you know, what happens if you eat for only eight hours a day and you fast for 16. This is fairly po- popular. Another one is uh, what happens if you eat every other day? Uh, another one is 5-2. What happens if you eat only 500 calories two days of the week? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so all of those, I think, if you look at everything that has been published and if you came to the, the conference, uh, you realize it's got, they have good and bad, right? The, the, the bad, the good is uh, there are clear metabolic effects for people lose weight, mm-hmm. they sleep better the metabolic risk factors go down. So whether it's cholesterol or blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. The risk is associated with, one of them is just compliance. Eventually, as we've seen for calorie restriction, so the calorie restriction was something very old, it's about 100 years old. It's very simple. What, if, what happens if somebody normal weight cuts their calories by 30%? And for the longest time, we thought it was very positive. And then it, we found out that it's as good as it is bad. Right. And, and, and for example, the monkeys that do this calorie restriction, they have no diabetes at all. Uh, 50% reduction in cardiovascular disease, 50% reduction in cancer, and yet they don't really live that much longer. Right? Mm. So, so, intermittent fasting, in the sense of every other day, 16 hours a day, et cetera, et cetera, reminds me a lot of calorie restriction. Mm-hmm. Great benefits, but then at the end of it, you really don't get any benefits, right? Uh, meaning overall, but you might get lots of positive and lots of negative. So this is why we came up with this uh, periodic fasting mimicking diet. The idea was spent so many, you know, really 25 years working with the top people in the world on all of these different interventions. And how do you get the bad and eliminate the, uh, how do you get the good and eliminate the the bad, the side effects that that we we just mentioned. And and so this is where periodic fasting, particularly fasting mimicking diet uh, came in. And so can you, for people who are unfamiliar, can you explain what the kit is and how you sort of created the Prolon kit? Yeah. So, so yeah, then the, the Prolon uh, kit, uh, and first of all, I should mention that I don't make a penny out of this, either as a consultant, I don't get money as a consultant, and my, all my shares will be donated uh, to charity uh, in, 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 my, in the company. So, so the Prolon kit comes from the company Alnutra. And, uh, and it's what we tested at USC in, in clinical trials, in several clinical trials, 
And the, the, one of the major ones was published last year was uh, on, on people, on normal people aged 20 to 70, and the idea was, you know, can we uh, reduce cholesterol, blood pressure, et cetera. And so what it is is uh, uh, five days of a vegan diet, uh, relatively low calorie, between 800 and 1,100 calories. And in the clinical trial, this was given to people once a month for five days, for three months, right? So they came in, we measured everything, then we gave them the kit, and then we said, go home and just do this five days on your own. We, we had a nutritionist just follow him by phone. And then they came back and did it twice more, a month away and two months away. So the results of the clinical trial were remarkable, um, going from uh, reduced uh, blood pressure, cholesterol, triglyceride, uh, fasting glucose, a C-reactive protein, so systemic inflammation, IGF-1, which is a potential risk factor for cancer. And the particularly impressive part to me, since I was really focusing not just on the effects, but also removing the side effects, was the differential effects, meaning that somebody came in and had fairly low fasting glucose, fasting sugar, it didn't go down further. For example, with calorie restriction and other practices, you can, you can see that sugar keeps coming, down, keeps coming down. And that's not really good, you know, because it, it, it just, there are levels of, of these markers that you shouldn't go, uh, that you shouldn't lower any mm -hmm. further. But if you had 106, 110 fasting glucose, then that glucose levels came down to the normal level. Right? And that, that, these differential effects we really saw with almost everything. If it was normal, nothing happened. And if it was high, it was lowered. And so it really told us that what we had seen in mice with these regenerative, rejuvenating effects that we had seen in mice in multiple organs and systems were probably occurring also in the people. Uh, so if your liver is working well and, 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 and the, your immune system is working well, there is no inflammation, there is no chronic inflammation, there is nothing to reduce. Mm -hmm. uh, and if your sugar is uh, fasting glucose is 75, you don't want to reduce that. But if you're becoming insulin resistant, for example, and your cells are not responding to insulin normally, they're resistant to the effects of insulin. Now you're fixing those cells, and now the body goes back to its normal fasting glucose because the insulin is working well again. And we had clearly shown this uh, with, with lots of tests in mice, mm -hmm. and this was the confirmation in people. So, and the idea is that you do the fasting mimicking diet, which I have done. I love the crackers. The crackers were a, <laughs> a highlight. And it's actually, it's kind of boring by the end, but it's not hard. It's actually really quite easy in package. So what is happening? Your body is consuming damaged cells. Is that correct? Yes. So, of course, in the mouse studies, we can demonstrate things. In the human studies, right. we can um, yes. see changes, but we don't know for sure. But yeah, what we think it's happening is that the, uh, the cells that are damaged are, let's say, autoimmune cells, uh, insulin-resistant cells, etc. they are killed or they're clearing their content, right? So uh, by a self-feeding process. And so the cell is basically in itself. And in that process, then it shrinks, the body shrinks, the organ shrink, the cell shrinks, and, uh, and it just sits there until the food comes back around. Of course, when it comes back around, we're starting to see evidence of selective preferential treatment, if you will. So the body, the cell, and not just the cell, also at the organ level, as things are being rebuilt, 
This seems to be the ability of the body to recognize this is, a, a, let's say, a, a normal DNA sequence. Uh, let me use that, or let's say a cell that has a good DNA sequence or a normal DNA sequence, let me use that as a clone, to, as a template to clone mm-hmm. more cells or more DNA. And, and this will make sense. We know that during development, the body is able to recognize bad cells, uh, t- tell apart bad cells from good cells, and also uh, the damaged uh, DNA from non-damaged DNA, and, and just pick the, the, the components that are going to guarantee that the, the baby in that case uh, is going to be healthy and able to get to reproduction. In this case, the, everything shrinks. You have to rebuild it. You're not generating a new person, but you're generating parts of, of, of that person that are new. And, uh, and those parts, of course, uh, have to be highly functional. Now, nowadays, of course, we, most people will never see a fasting day in their entire life. But now imagine, you know, 50,000 years ago, we were probably mostly starving and eating once in a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, so we come from that world. And not just us, every organism that you can think of, from bacteria to uh, yeast to worms, etc., they're mostly in a starving world. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, they get food. So the idea is by this fasting mimicking diet, your body believes that you're starving or fasting. And so it's feasting on itself. And the tendency is to consume things that are damaged or need to be excreted out of your system anyway. And because we tend to eat all the time, that's not happening on a normal basis. Is that vaguely it? (laughs) Yes. And never actually, it could be that in the great majority of the people never happens. Mm-hmm. Right? So you just keep accumulating junk and accumulating junk and accumulating junk, and you never have this opportunity to reset the system because most people we talk to have never fasted even once mm-hmm. in their lives. And so, and I would imagine, I know that this isn't the intent, but I certainly lost a few pounds when I did the Prolon diet. And then I kind of kept it off. So is that the idea? Like if you do it every four months, which I think is what you recommend, is the idea that it can help you sort of maintain weight? Or is that like, who cares, not really the point? Well, <laughs> being overweight and, and being obese is one of the, the biggest factors in determining diseases. I'll right. give you an example. If a child, and go even in the child range, if a child is overweight continuously between the age 7 and 18, the chances of developing diabetes goes up 400-fold, 400%. Wow. So basically that child is uh, condemned to get Mm -hmm. diabetes. And that's how important it is to to keep a a normal weight. But so absolutely, the explanation is very simple. The reservoir, people have a reservoir in the visceral area, Mm -hmm. and that's where the fat in the old days it would be that we feasted on fruits and maybe nuts, et cetera, and we accumulated lots of fat. Belly fat primarily. Belly fat, yeah. yeah. And, that, and, and, then, and this was during the summer. And then during the winter, all the fat was utilized because there was no food potentially at all, or certainly there were long periods with no food. So then the fasting and the fasting-making diet go and get the fat, Mm-hmm. Only from there. And believe it or not, it doesn't touch the uh, subcutaneous fat, right? Mm. Because probably the subcutaneous fat had the much more of a, a role of shielding uh, either mechanical or from cold 
And so that's not touched. So it's going after the visceral fat and that's utilized uh, for fuel. And then, it, of course, then when you refeed, uh, everything else gets rebuilt, but the fat doesn't get rebuilt. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. That's one effect. The other effect that we've seen in the great majority of people is the education, the involuntary education, meaning that almost everybody says, including those that have lost 30 or 40 pounds or, or more, they say, I... I try. I was talking to somebody, for example, yesterday. Did the, 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 the FMD many times and and lost forty pounds. And he was saying, I try to eat the, as much pizza as I used to, and I used to eat a lot of it, of course. And I couldn't <laughs> anymore. You know, it, yeah. it, it, I just couldn't. I will have three slices, and that's what he said. I will have three slices. Now I have three slices, and then I just don't feel like eating anymore. So this education probably it may have to do with. So the five days are now uh, giving the brain an opportunity to sort of find its real environment, right? And, and the, the brain, once it sees the effects of these five days of a vegan diet, fasting or fasting mimicking, I think it probably realizes that that's what I want. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that kind of, I have to get much closer to the diet because I feel better. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why we're seeing the, lots of people um, going to a much healthier and keeping the weight off, maybe not all the weight. Sometimes, you know, they may lose uh, a certain amount of pounds and then they gain some of it back. But they tend to be able to uh, utilize the FMD, the prolonged FMD, periodically to get to, to where they want to get. Not everybody uh, can do that, but we, we, we're seeing the, the majority of people able to do so. And I know that there's really promising research around fasting and cancer and fasting and some autoimmune diseases, including MS, Alzheimer's. I know those diets are specifically tailored to, I know that it's in early days, we're not talking about FMD, but what do you think, what's happening there? Like with cancer, is it simply that you're starving the tumor or is yeah, it not so that simple? Well, I mean, for example, there, there has been just a, a couple of studies that we finished uh, in, uh, in Charité Hospital in, in Berlin, finished on cancer. Um, so there, there are several effects. One is as you're starving a person or a mouse uh, or most organisms, these organisms are going to a protected, highly protected mode. And this is probably just an ancient uh, um, mechanism to go to make sure that while you're starving, you're not aging, right? Because mm. you have to protect the germline. You have to protect the DNA that's going to be responsible for your offspring. Interesting. So, so then the shield is created. And so if you uh, treat uh, a patient with chemotherapy, we're seeing in multiple studies now, the side effects are lower or much lower, mm. okay? It's still early, but now we're getting to maybe 100 patients that have been tested, 150 uh, in three or four different trials, and every single one has been uh, positive. Uh, but then we published a series of papers uh, showing the sensitization of the cancer cells. So the cancer cells, by definition, are rebels. They disobey, and that's the definition of a cancer cell, disobey anti-growth orders, such as the one coming from starvation. So by now disobeying these orders, the cancer cell gets in trouble. So imagine, I always say, imagine somebody in the desert running without shade and without water, right? So if you uh, are under the sun and you got shade and, and it went under the shade and water, 
then you probably can survive. But if you refuse that, if you rebel and you, and you keep running and you, you refuse the, the shade and the water, it's just a matter of days, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we think is such a fundamentally important feature is to think about this and say, eventually, if we figure out how to change the environment so much to create these differential effects between normal cells and cancer cells, we can kill every single one of the cancer cells because each one represents a rebellious, a rebellious cell and it cannot make it under certain conditions. Particularly, we almost never see anything cured, even in mice, when we just use the diet on where we just use any therapy that you can think of in cancer, immunotherapy, hormone therapy, uh, chemotherapy, radiotherapy. But when we combine the two, that's where we start seeing cancer-free survival, right? So the mice mm. are now cured from many different types of cancers. As now this is being repeated by many laboratories. So, yeah, so th- we think that, you know, that chemo or that radio or that uh, uh, additional therapy is representing uh, the sun, Right, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and eventually um, the combination of no water and the sun is going to kill you, but only if you're a rebel. Interesting. I love the idea of the combination too of some of the lifestyle factors with more conventional treatments because it always has seemed like those two in combination are invariably more powerful, um, or maybe not always, but like. It's nice to mix the two. Yeah, so our idea, and this I started a foundation called Create Cures uh, for this. Our idea is to just get people to 110 healthy, right? Mm-hmm. No matter what. Um, so sometimes we're saying, hey, clearly we got to use the drugs yeah. together with the fasting mimicking diet or, or, or the other interventions. Sometimes we say, forget it. We don't think the drug is doing any good. For example, diabetes. We think that the majority of people with the right physician and with the right nutritionist or dietitian and the fasting-making diet, etc., uh, they can be cured. So the approach is, in, in some cases, or maybe many cases, the combination of drugs and the diet is going to be much more powerful than each alone. But let's say for prevention mm-hmm. uh, and for treatment of a number of diseases, uh, we're working hard at demonstrating that this can be done potentially without the drugs at all, right? I mean, it has to be demonstrated. Obviously, this is not uh, an idea. You know, we're doing large, for example, now we're doing a clinical trial with 400 patients that have diabetes or, pre- or metabolic syndrome. Um, you know, so this, that's the kind of studies that randomized uh, uh, clinical studies that we're going to have to finish to, uh, to change the standard of care and, and in some cases say, you don't need drugs at all. Yeah. And are you finding resistance to this? It's interesting. I sat on a plane next to a guy and we just ended up talking and he sort of volunteered that he had been diagnosed as diabetic and his doctor tried to put him on insulin and he said no. Like he didn't really know anything about it, but he was like, I'm not doing it. And he changed his diet dramatically and doesn't have diabetes. And, but it's interesting because he had to fight his doctor, dramatic, like a major tug of war in yeah. refusing meds. So is that what you're encountering? Yes and no. Meaning that, yes, we, for example, with oncologists, we had to fight for years and years. Uh, and we're not fighting for, for uh, changing the standard of care. We were fighting for clinical trials. We were saying, mm-hmm. let's test it, you know. And, uh, but now I would say the great majority of, of big hospitals and big universities 
are on our side and basically saying, let's test it. Let's keep testing it. It's looking good. Let's keep going. And I think we're close to, uh, to making the change. Uh, yeah, so I think there are, there are doctors that are open-minded and they're uh, careful but open-minded. And there are those that are just refusing to uh, see any changes. And, and so, again, we're, we're going to say that in some cases, let's test the diets and interventions without the drugs. In some cases, like cancer, particularly metastatic cancer, advanced cancer, uh, we cannot even help the mice with mm-hmm. the diet alone. Uh, so, and when you do this for 15 years, and you, we ne- I don't think we've ever cured a mouse uh, with cancer with the diet alone. Mm-hmm. Then you have to say, you know, we, we have to let the technology uh, help us. Because otherwise, um, particularly when, when we combine it, we see this cancer-free survival, at least in mice. Um, yeah, so I think it's, um, there has been a lot of opposition, but now it's changing dramatically. In the last two or three years, we've seen a, a dramatic change. But everybody's telling us, don't do the quackery. Don't, uh, don't try to be the rebel. Uh, make sure you go as fast as possible, help the people that need to, to get help, and, but do their clinical trials mm-hmm. and, and demonstrate it. Be conservative in that sense. And I think it's a very good uh, lesson from the doctors uh, that we received because I think this time is here to stay. Uh, and it, it's looking like that. It's really looking like this is the first time in history where these dietary interventions are going to move into uh, standard of care mm-hmm. in the doctor's office. It's time for a quick break. Skincare. Two little words that get a ton of airtime over here at Goop. Our passion runs deep. So deep we created our own line of powerful non-toxic skincare, published a book called Goop Clean Beauty, and just launched a drinkable collagen powder. So yes, we're mindful about what we put on our bodies, but we're equally tuned into what we're feeding them. And for better or worse, what I eat inevitably seems to show up on my skin which is where delicious superfoods like Blue Diamonds, Whole Natural Almonds can come in. An easy source of skin-friendly vitamin E, along with minerals and fiber, this is a snack that can help keep skin looking and feeling good. And it doesn't hurt that Blue Diamonds non-pareil supreme almonds are addictively snackable and satisfying. You can blend them right into smoothie bowls. I pack them for midday pick-me-ups when I'm traveling. And in the Goop Test Kitchen, the team uses them when they're cooking too. Visit goop.com to get the full recipes our editors whipped up with Blue Diamond Whole Natural Almonds. I typically do a detox at the beginning of the year, but decided to skip this January, which might make me the only person in the Goop office or all of Los Angeles who can enjoy some wine and cheese right now. No dry January for me. But I have been testing out some of the recipes from Goop's annual detox, and I'm always big on our working girl detox recipes, especially the sheet pan dinners. You basically just toss a bunch of ingredients onto a single pan and pop it in the oven. I'm also working my way through GP's new cookbook, The Clean Plate, which is a lot of fun. And then there are plenty of nights where I know there's no way I'm going to pull off a trip to the grocery store or cook a meal from scratch, but I'd still like something homemade, healthy, and filling. This is the blessing that is Gobble. They're a meal delivery service that does all the peeling, chopping, marinating, and thinking for you. So your meal prep kits hit your door fresh and ready to go. With Gobble, it takes my husband or me about 15 minutes to get dinner on the table. 
Every week, the Gobble menu includes vegetarian, gluten, dairy-free, and low-carb options. We've had a few Gobble dinners recently that stand out, but my current favorite might be their chicken enchiladas verde with avocado and pinto beans. As mentioned, I'm not doing a cleanse. To try it yourself, head to gobble.com slash goop and get $50 off your first box of meals. That's gobble.com slash goop. Let's go back to today's conversation. What are you most excited about in terms of some of the other chronic diseases that you're looking at? Or what's what's on the horizon in general that you're most excited yeah, about? Autoimmunity. So we published in both mice and humans already very uh, promising results. Uh, you know, and, and so we're now looking at, we already published on, on multiple sclerosis. Uh, we're now looking at Crohn's, colitis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, um, and then, um, you know, diabetes, metabolic syndrome. Uh, we're about to start a trial on, on Alzheimer. Mm. Uh, we're combining the FMD with immunotherapy. Uh, we're combining the FMD with uh, estrogen therapy uh, for breast cancer patients uh, that are estrogen receptor positive, polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, Hashimoto. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, we have, I think, 30 trials uh, right now that are um, either running or about to start. And I think this is going to go up to maybe 50 or 60 by, wow. by next year. We're getting requests almost every week uh, for a new clinical trial. And, um, and people are willing to pay for it. I mean, hospitals, universities are willing to pay for it. And they're willing to really put a lot of their energy into it. So this is why I, I think uh, um, you know, all, all, lots of these are going to happen very soon. And, and we're going to start seeing... Uh, uh, good results. And is the is the one of the through lines that that the way that we accumulate these junk cells is it is that sort of chronic inflammation and is is the fasting diet minimizing inflammation or is does it completely depend on inflammation is just more mostly a marker or problem not the cause of the problems you know uh, we turned it around i think uh, um you know things happen with aging at all levels you know at the level of dna at the level of proteins and and, and everything starts to lose function and when things lose function then you're going to get inflammation but also you're going to get dna damage dna mutation mm-hmm. cancer autoimmunity etc cetera, etc cetera. You know, insulin resistance, uh, uh, neuronal dysfunction. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the idea is not really about inflammation, although inflammation can be a, a, a bad uh, player, right? Whether it's cancer or autoimmunities, um, it can have a, a major uh, role. But it's really about fixing things that are starting to become uh, distorted and dysfunctional and bring them back. But bring them back, the arrogance, you know, for example, Silicon Valley, um, and this idea of biohacking everything, we're all for biohacking. The FMD is biohacking, but it's biohacking that is very respectful of the 3 billion years, I call it 3 billion years of research and development, right? Mm-hmm. So, so these mechanisms have been evolving starting 3 billion years ago in simple organisms and, and trying to say, oh, forget all of that. I'm, I just I figured it all out. I'm just gonna biohack everything, <laughs> uh, biohack my way to to fix everything. It, it, it is. I mean, eventually we're gonna be able to do that. We're still nowhere near that. You know, how do you fix, for example, Alzheimer, a brain that is already heavily damaged? How do you bring it back mm-hmm. by biohacking? Extremely difficult. And this is why almost every intervention and drug has failed thus far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in many diseases, um, with a few exceptions, the drugs are just providing a Band-Aid uh, service more than 
um, you know, a, a repair, uh, regeneration, and rejuvenation effect. So on Alzheimer's specifically, because there are, obviously there are so many different theories as to what's happening, do you, based on fasting, do you have your own theory? Do you think it's a virus? Do you think it's, and that the fasting allows your body to kill the virus? Like, do you, I know I'm, this is probably way too simple, but what do you think is going on? Yeah, so I think there is some consensus on some of the features in an Alzheimer's brain. You know, for example, we know that is familial Alzheimer's disease that is caused by certain mutation in certain genes. Uh, you know, the presenilins, uh, uh, APP, the, the protein that makes beta amyloid. Uh, so we know what where Alzheimer can come from. It can come from just a genetic mutation. And there are some things that happen. For example, this protein in the brain called tau gets hyperphosphorylated and becomes dysfunctional. So if you think of biohacking, again, you would say, well, I don't even know what I'm fighting here, right? Right. And, 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 so, and most people will agree. Say, well, I think it's beta amyloid extracellular. Some people say, I think it's intracellular. So it's, I think it's tau. You know, so if you yeah. go to a conference on Alzheimer's, you're going to hear you know, lots of different ideas. And what we're saying is, why don't we focus on the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's, which is not what people think, but it's aging, right? So mm. aging is by far the, the number one risk factor. And so if we can rejuvenate the brain and maybe impose a self-repair effect, uh, we may have a shot at you know, postponing Alzheimer's. Now, most people don't realize if you postpone Alzheimer's by 10, 15 years, most people never get, get Alzheimer's. Right. Uh, so we don't even need to cure it. We because need to they're postpone. dead or because? Yeah, because they're dead. Yeah, yeah because they're dead. <laughs> uh, and, but, you know, you know, those 15 years are 15 years of life yeah. that destroys the patients. Let's say somebody gets a 75 and dies at 90. Right. Uh, I mean, these are devastating Terrible. 15 years for the person and for the family. And um, so, yeah, we're saying, hey, if we can get you to, you know, 89.5 and uh, healthy in the last six months, maybe uh, you get some, some dementia, uh, that's a pretty, that, that would be a remarkable uh, change. And yeah, that's what we're for focusing sure. on. I mean, I feel like it's the biggest specter in most people's lives, this idea that of losing their minds. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, the, not that cancer or autoimmunities are, are, are lesser problems. I mean, the good news with Alzheimer's is, is the age at which you get it. But still, it's really dev- it's devastating already to think mm-hmm. that you're going to get it. You know, I, I meet lots of people that say, you know, my father had it, my grandmother had it. And so they're really worried. And so I think this can affect their lives even earlier. But we now know, for example, that Alzheimer's may be type 3 diabetes, right? It's, it, oh. it's one of the, the words that, that are, are used to, to, to describe it. And so, uh, so we know that nutrition has a lot to do uh, with Alzheimer's disease and uh, more reason to, um, to think about, uh, you know, the, 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 what I described in the book, the everyday diet, the pescatarian diet, but very special pescatarian diet. It's not just about being pescatarian. It's low protein, uh, high nourishment, and lots of tricks in it. And so that's very important. And then the fasting-making diet, mm-hmm. and that's the second way that we think that uh, you can uh, uh, do good. And the third way is exercise. And the fourth way that I talk about in the book for Alzheimer's is 
mental exercise. Right? Mm. Keep doing, you know, math. Keep, you know, reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, stay very active. That makes a big difference in mm-hmm. in uh, in whether somebody may get Alzheimer at eighty or may uh, get it at ninety two. So, if I'm sort of a proxy for the people who are listening, I'm thirty nine. I'm at a pretty healthy weight. You. Besides following the pescatarian vegan diet that you outline in your book, and I exercise more than 150 minutes a week, typically, although I know you sort of are a bigger proponent of just not being sedentary. For someone like me, would you recommend the a fasting mimicking diet every four months and then trying to eat within sort of a 12-hour window? Or what's the like for a healthy person who wants to have a long health span – or do I do FMD once a year? Like, what's the... Yeah, no. So the, the, the standard is the following. Uh, let's say you're obese and, and you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol once a month until you move to a different mm-hmm. range. Uh, somebody's healthy. Um, let's say somebody's 35 years old, an athlete, pescatarian diet, everything perfect, maybe twice a year. Okay. The average person that is healthy, no, nothing out of the, the normal range, I would say three times a year is a good number. Now, eventually, as we're collecting now, you know, 100, 000, over 100,000 people have done the prolonged FMD, but we're, now we're collecting at USC the data from the doctors, right? Mm. We're collecting the data. We're starting to do, use an app to, to monitor everybody. So I think in a couple of years, we're going to have a couple million people. And then we're going to be able to say, hey, people that were healthy and they did it, you know, five times a year, they did even better than three. I don't know, maybe not. But so that's what we're, we're going to look at. And also the safety, right? So far it's been, you know, extraordinarily safe. And we're very pleased that we haven't heard back from doctors and, and, and nutritionists and dietitians about uh, safety concerns. But uh, once we have a couple of million people, that's going to make it uh, so much uh, more convincing. And also uh, that's going to shape our recommendations. Yeah. And I have to say, if you're busy and you don't have time to cook, it's not a bad alternative. It's soup mixes and crackers and juice, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Or for tea. Those five days, yeah. it does the, take away your, your yeah, burden. Exactly. And I know the company now is, uh, is going to launch a uh, fast bar. And oh. so, and so um, soon enough, I think uh, the idea is really to replace snacks. I mean, we're just surrounded by junk food. And so, yeah, replace particularly snacks and, and things that are, are just adding to the, to the daily calories. But also for some people, maybe replacing meals. Um, that's also something that, that, that they're thinking about. Yeah. Smart. Well, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining Elisa's interview with Walter Longo. It's not surprising that Time named him one of the 50 most influential people in healthcare. To learn more about Walter's work, head to goop.com slash the podcast and walterlongo.com. Thanks again for listening to the Goop podcast. We'll be back on Thursday. Hit subscribe to keep up and please rate, review and share with a friend. For more info, head to goop.com slash the podcast.